Welcome to the Spiritual Formation Book Club. I'm Aaron, and this Advent season, we've been going through Joseph Ratzinger's Jesus of Nazareth, The Infancy Narratives. Now, last week, we discussed the first chapter of the book that focused purely on the genealogies found in the books of Matthew, Luke, and the very first section of John. And this week, we're going to be discussing the Annunciation of John and Jesus, the announcement of their coming beings, their coming pregnancies, their coming births to their parents. It's important to always recognize how intricately related Jesus and his cousin John are. We're going to see from their very births that they are related all the way until John loses his head. John's going to be the one that announces Jesus at the beginning of John the Disciples' gospel. And he's going to be the one to tell the whole world, here, here is the Messiah. If you missed last week's episode, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast, go back and listen to it, because you're going to have to fully understand genealogies in order to understand John's story here at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. You see, we're going to have to look all the way back in the Old Testament, all the way back to the Levite tribe and his priestly lineage to understand why John is the forerunner to the Messiah, why John, the cousin of Jesus, is the one that's going to be recognizing him, calling him out, and pointing him to the masses, saying this, this is the Messiah, this is where you guys should be looking for your salvation. As we said, in the Old Testament, the Levites were the priestly lineage. The Levites were given no land of their own in the books of Joshua when all the land of Canaan was divvied up among the tribes. The other 11 provinces, the other 11 tribes within Israel got land, but the Levites were given land within those other 11 tribes, and that land was used specifically for the temples and the sacrifices. This priestly lineage was spread out among the rest of Israel. You can go back to the book of Leviticus that gets its very name from the tribe of Levi, the Levites, this people, this priestly tribe that John is a descendant of. Now, the book of Leviticus is mostly about the priests, what they could wear, what they could eat, what they could drink, their duties within the tabernacle, the systems of cleansings and sacrifices and burnt offerings that they were to make. In this book, you have stories such as Aaron's sons, Aaron, the high priest, the first high priest, his sons disobeying God and the things that he has set up. And they go into the Holy of Holies where they are not supposed to be because they are not holy. They have not done the things necessary to become holy. They've taken it among themselves to go and do what they want within the eyes of God. And as a consequence, standing before the holy God, while they themselves are not holy, they die, they perish. So this tribe of Levi were the priests. And we see that both John's parents were of this lineage. Zechariah, his father, was a Levitical priest, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also a Levite. And Luke actually tells us that they were both blameless and righteous before the Lord. They were not like the sons of Aaron. They were the full expression of the priesthood. They were righteous. They were just. And with all that said, that means that John is a Levite. He is a priest. And he is coming from parents who can raise him up to be the epitome of what a priest is supposed to be. While unconventionally, John does exactly what the priesthood is supposed to do. The priesthood in the Old Testament... Its original intention, its original purpose was to point the people towards salvation, point the people towards the sacrifices that they need to make in order to become God's holy people, to stand before a holy God. John transitions that salvation from the sacrificial system to the penultimate sacrifice found in Jesus, pointing them out and saying, this, this man right here, he is our sacrifice. He is our Messiah. 
And as an aside, John is the last of his priestly lineage. He's he doesn't have children that we know of. He doesn't get married that we know of. He ends up getting his head chopped off before the prime of his life. And he is actually ushering in this new priesthood with Jesus. Jesus, we know in the New Testament, is our new high priest. This old system is gone. This Old Testament system of sacrifices is gone. And now we have a new high priest, a new leader of the priesthood who we are supposed to be following because it is now he, Jesus, who helps us know how to be holy and blameless before the eyes of God. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 tell us, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Where the priests had to make themselves clean through sacrifices before entering the Holy of Holies, before entering God's footstool, before entering God's throne room on earth, we no longer have to make those sacrifices. Jesus is that sacrifice for us. Therefore, we get to approach the throne of grace, as the the writer of Hebrews says, with boldness, knowing that we will not be struck down like the sons of Aaron who appeared before the holiness of God in an unholy state. No, we get to appear before a holy God because we are holy when we have Jesus as our Savior. Peter actually builds on this concept in his first letter. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You see, before it was the Levite tribe that was the priesthood. Now, that priesthood, that royal priesthood, are those that follow Jesus. So you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. So Jesus is our high priest. Now we, the followers of Jesus, the church, we are a royal priesthood. We take on the very nature of what the Levites were supposed to be, what the Levites were supposed to do. Their calling, their purpose was to lead others into holiness with God. And that's the very calling that we have upon the church. We are a royal priesthood leading people into a holy relationship with a holy God. Transitioning now back to the text, we actually have two linear annunciation stories in the Gospel of Luke. We have that of John and that of Jesus. Two different lineages from two very different people. So let's contrast Zechariah and Mary. An angel descends to Zechariah and informs him that he and his wife are going to be with a child. The conversation actually takes place in the temple when Zechariah is chosen to enter the Holy of Holies. Only one person a year, only one priest a year entered this Holy of Holies. So Zechariah is by himself, he's alone, within God's very throne room here on earth. And it's here that the epitome of heaven meeting earth that Zechariah encounters this angel. However, on the flip side, we're going to see that Mary, she's a woman. She's a nobody. She's from a nowhere town called Nazareth. And an angel appears to her as well to inform her that she's going to be with it with child. Two complete contrasts. We have the highest of high places on this earth, the Holy of Holies. And we have a nobody 
from a nowhere town, and both receive an angel to announce that they are going to be pregnant. If the world had its way, we would assume that the Messiah would come from somebody like Zechariah, a person of high prestige who has done right in the eyes of God. He's just and righteous. Instead, the Messiah comes from a nobody person, Mary, in a nowhere place, Nazareth. God is constantly flipping our expectations upside down. Dallas Willard reminds us that the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. It's a kingdom of love, humility, and sacrifice. And that's how the Son of God chose to enter this world. Paul's words to the Philippians fit very well here. He says, Rather, he, Jesus, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. You see, he could have been a king. He could have come from the priest. Instead, he's going to choose to come from the line of David. And we'll see why later. But he chose not to come as a king not to come in full fruition of his very being, to not come in the middle of the day where all the masses are gathered around and watching, but instead he comes as a servant to a lowly person in a lowly place in the middle of the night. That's the kind of God we serve, a God who constantly upends our expectations for his own glory. Now, location isn't the only contrast between Zechariah and Mary. Mary has a faith that goes deeper than Zechariah's. When the angel tells him, tells Zechariah about the child, Zechariah's first instinct is to doubt that it can ever happen. He asks how this can ever happen when he comes from a lineage where it's already happened. All you got to do is go back to the story in Genesis of Abraham and Sarah to recognize that it doesn't matter how old you are, how barren you might be, that God can and will give him a child. There's no reason to doubt when he already knows that it can happen. And yet, when Mary is told, she doesn't doubt. She's curious, though. She asks the question, how will this be, since I am a virgin? Here, how will this be, is a very different question from Zechariah's, how can this be? One doubts that God can do it, while the other asks how God will accomplish it. After it's explained to Mary, her answer is, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled true acceptance of the things of God. So let us go ahead and take a look at the words that the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary in Luke chapter 1. In the scriptures, angels usually start with a greeting, do not be afraid. Their, their very being, the way that they look, their holiness are terrifying to the unsuspecting eye. But Gabriel, he gives a different greeting. He starts out by saying, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary's response is not fear of the angel, but fear of the words. Who was she to be highly favored of God? What was it that he was expecting from her? The angel repeats these words immediately to quell her fear. He says, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. In the Old Testament, finding favor with God was often followed by a blessing. Abraham received God's favor in Genesis 18.3. The Lord here appears to Abraham and sends three men, who is often thought to be representation of the Trinity, but there are three men whom he finds favor with and takes care of. It's these three men who prophesy and promise that Sarah will have a child. It's a story every child in Israel would have known. And Mary, she receives a similar prophecy. She's told, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The idea of the Son of God, thus the Son of the Most High, was ingrained in Israel's subconscious. We talked about this last week when we looked at the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. This subconscious idea within Israel is that the promised Messiah is going to bring about a new Davidic kingdom. They're going to bring Israel out of captivity and into their calling as the leader of the nations, reviving Israel at the top of its game, which is when King David ruled. Mary would have understood this promise differently than we would have today. Israel had no concept of a Messiah who would live forever, only one who would be God's ultimate tool in raising Israel from the ashes. When the angel tells Mary he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, his kingdom will never end, she would have understood this as the already promised reigning of Israel, the, the head nation on the earth. God was going to raise his kingdom up and it would stay on top. God's superpowered nation on earth. We often talk about superpowers with, within the world, the, the nation that's on top. We, in the Cold War, it was Russia versus the United States. In the past, it's been Britain. There's been a time in Napoleon when it was France. There's been a time in the East when it was, was China. There's been all sorts of different ruling nations on the earth. Israel would take its place as the superpower on earth and bring all the other nations under its wing and in the process, show them how to be holy so that they could stand before a holy God. But when we read back into this text, we already know the whole story. We know the outcome of the story of Jesus, the outcome of the story of Mary, and where the church ends up because of this. Jesus is raised from the dead and has the literal opportunity now to reign forever. This prophecy to Mary is not just a prophecy of a kingdom. It's the prophecy of a king. Jesus, the head of his kingdom, the church. Near the end, Mary gives her reply to the angel. After they have their conversation, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled to me. There's no laughter like in Sarah. There's no doubt like in Zechariah. There's only pure, unadulterated acceptance as being the Lord's servant. In this chapter, Ratzinger recalls Bernard of Clairvaux's Advent homily, and he gives a little summary of it, but I think that it's extremely powerful, and I want to read it for you. This can be found in uh, St. Bernard's homily number four. Or if you want to purchase the Office of Readings, this is found on December 20th, the fourth week of Advent. And this beautiful homily was written by Bernard all the way back in the 12th century. Bernard puts all of humanity as the one asking Mary here to accept the angel's message. Here are his words. You have heard, O virgin, that you will conceive and bear a son. You have heard that it will not be by man, but by the Holy Spirit. The angel awaits an answer. It is time for him to return to God who sent him. We too are waiting, O lady, for your word of compassion. The sentence of condemnation weighs heavily upon us. The price of our salvation is offered to you. We shall be set free at once if you consent. In the eternal word of God, we all came to be, and behold, we die. In your brief response... We are to be remade in order to be recalled to life. 
Tearful Adam with his sorrowing family begs this of you, O loving virgin. In their exile from paradise, Abraham begs it, David begs it, all the other holy patriarchs, your ancestors, ask it of you, as they dwell in the country of the shadow of death. This is what the whole earth waits for, prostrate at your feet. It is right in doing so, for on your word depends comfort for the wretched, ransom for the captive, freedom for the condemned, indeed salvation for all the sons of Adam, the whole of your race. Answer quickly, O virgin, reply in haste to the angel, or rather through the angel to the Lord. Answer with a word, receive the word of God, speak your own word, conceive the divine word, breathe a passing word, embrace the eternal word. Why do you delay? Why are you afraid? Believe, give praise, and receive. Let humility be bold. Let modesty be confident. This is no time for virginal simplicity to forget prudence. In this matter alone, O prudent virgin, do not fear to be presumptuous. Though modest silence is pleasing, dutiful speech is now more necessary. Open your heart to faith, O blessed virgin, your lips to praise, your womb to the Creator. See, the desired of all nations is at your door, knocking to enter. If he should pass by because of your delay, in sorrow you will begin to seek after him afresh, the one whom your soul loves. Arise, hasten, open. Arise in faith, hasten in devotion, open in praise and thanksgiving. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, she says, be it done to me according to your word. We're actually going to break down this homily and I'm going to write a little bit about it, discuss a little bit about it. And you can find that on the Patreon at patreon.com slash spiritual formation book club. So if you found yourself wrestling with some of these ideas of Bernard of Clairvaux, you want a little bit more in-depth understanding of who Bernard is and what he's saying in this homily, then go ahead and subscribe to the Patreon to support the channel and you'll have access within the next week. So in the end, Mary accepted the Logos and the word became flesh. But there's also a different side to this story. Luke, as we have seen, tells the stories of Zachariah and Mary. Matthew, on the other hand, tells the story of Joseph. Joseph is betrothed to Mary. Now, back then, betrothal is very different than what we would understand today. A betrothal was a one-year waiting period. In the eyes of the law, Mary and Joseph were already married. But there would be one year where Mary would still be living with her parents, and then after that year was over, she would be beckoned into the house of Joseph and they would consummate their marriage. So while they were technically married within the eyes of the law, they had yet to actually consummate that marriage. So when Mary shows up pregnant, it's obvious to Joseph that she's been cheating on him. But Matthew informs us that Joseph is a just man. So he wants to divorce Mary quietly, not put her through public shame. He cares for her and doesn't want to put her through more pain and sorrow than is necessary. But that night, Joseph actually receives a dream filled with revelation. While in the stories of Luke, Zechariah and Mary physically receive an angel standing before them, here, in Matthew's story, Joseph receives a, a vision 
a dream of an angel. And in this dream, the angel tells him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This angel clarifies and confirms everything that Mary has been saying. She has not cheated on him. She has not gone against her word. She has not broken her vows. No, this is a new creation. This is a new thing. Here, the angel calls Joseph a son of David, which refers us back just a little bit before in the Gospel of Matthew to his genealogy. Again, we talked last week about why the genealogy of David was so important in the Gospel of Matthew and how Matthew was relating Jesus to David through that genealogy. That genealogy ends with Joseph and begins a new one with Jesus. Joseph is also given a name. He's to call the child Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation. And Joseph is also given a calling for the child. He's told that this child will save the people from their sins. From the very beginning, Jesus is linked to God. For according to the Jewish law, it is only God who can forgive sins. We see this constant struggle between the Pharisees and Jesus throughout the Gospels where he comes and forgives people of their sins. And in the process, they call him out saying, you can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. They don't recognize who Jesus is. But Joseph is given this calling. He's given this name from the very beginning so that he can be the father that Jesus needs so that he can be the person to raise Jesus up, to love him into this calling and help facilitate the calling upon the child's life. Matthew ends this section by quoting Isaiah 7:14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Again, if you're interested in diving deeper into this verse, and even possibly a few other prophecies about Jesus, then be sure to check us out at patreon.com spiritualformationbookclub where I'm going to expand upon this verse and show why Matthew puts it in, how we can interpret it within the context of Isaiah, and why it is attached now to Jesus. So, patreon.com slash spiritualformationbookclub to get that information later this week. So we're at a point now where Mary and Joseph both understand the miraculous nature of her pregnancy. There was no consummation, only an implantation by the Holy Spirit. And it's from here that Christology develops over the next couple hundred years. That is, the theological understanding of how God and man are formed and formulated together in the person of Jesus. We go all the way back to the beginning to all the way back to the virgin birth to help us understand the concept of who Christ actually is, how it is that he is able to save us from our sins, how it is that God and man can be combined within one body, and what that actually means for the rest of humanity and for God himself. At the end of this chapter on page 56, Ratzinger has this wonderful passage where he summarizes the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and their, their enunciations of John and Jesus. Here's what Ratzinger says. In Matthew and Luke, there is no trace of a cosmic revolution, nor is there any physical encounter between God and human beings. 
What we read there is an utterly humble story. The one whose very humility gives it a disturbing grandeur. It is Mary's obedience that opens the door to God. God's word, his spirit, created the child within her. He does so through the door of her obedience. In this way, Jesus is the new Adam, the new beginning from the virgin, who places herself entirely at the disposal of God's will. So a new creation comes about, God and man together, which is nevertheless tied to the free yes of the human creature found in Mary. That is the calling of the church. That is who we are, God and man, now together in one body. When we accept Jesus, we receive his spirit. We still have ourselves living here, and then we have God living within us. We become this new creation that God has created in Jesus, and we get to follow in his footsteps in saying yes as a human creature to allowing God to instill himself within us. I can think of no better summary of the Annunciation of Jesus and what it means for humanity. Next week, we're going to focus on the birth of Jesus and what can be found in the third chapter of Jesus of Nazareth, the Infancy Narratives. If you are interested in this podcast, go ahead and subscribe. Go ahead and give it a five-star rating if you can. It'll help boost the ratings within the podcast so that more people can see it as they search for it. And check us out at Patreon if you are interested in supporting us and what we are doing here. I thank you for spending this time with me and going over the Annunciation of Jesus. So until next time, I hope you read much, practice more, and live a life worthy of who you are. And God bless.